0: As we get into today's episode, I just want to take a second and remind you that there's a ton of extra content available to the members of Film & Whiskey Nation who support us through our Patreon. Check us out on patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. In 1931, director and star Charlie Chaplin gave the world a dynamic comedy that pulls not a single punch.
1: In 2023, we hang out in Kentucky to try a different kind of whiskey.
0: The film is City Lights. The whiskey is Town Branch Rye. And more of you than both. This is the Film and Whiskey Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at our first silent film in the history of the Film and Whiskey Podcast. I am so excited,
0: Brad. Like, I've been waiting for this moment for many seasons. See, and that's the thing, man. When you get your, your excitement up, your hopes up, I, everything in my soul... Just wants to crush it. I can tell. Yeah. I already know that you're coming in here just ready to
1: test all of my patience today, Brad, because we're looking at our first silent film and it is perhaps the the highest regarded American silent film from that entire era. We're talking about Charlie Chaplin's 1931 film City Lights. Brad, this is a movie that is ranked, I believe, now inside the top 10 on the American Film Institute's uh, updated top 100 list. It's a movie that appears on the BFI sight and sound poll. Brad, this is this is a juggernaut of silent cinema from a guy that I think most people know. If you haven't actually watched Charlie Chaplin, they know him from just being like the silly guy with the funny mustache. And here he mm-hmm. is being a silly
0: guy with a funny mustache. And people are saying it's one of the greatest films of all time. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say the other day you sent me his Oscar. What was it kind of like an honorary lifetime Oscar yeah. that they gave? Yep. Him? And I, I don't say that to disqualify it. I don't. He is one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. And his speech, if if you could call it that, was utterly heartwarming and touching. Mm. But the movie itself, Brad, <laughs> where, <laughs> where are we standing on that? That's uh, the question. We, that's what we're here to answer. And <laughs> I think that you were hedging your bets. You knew my darker impulses. And so you brought. Like, you know, Bob, you you consider yourself the expert here. But if you know about 5% of film, you brought in somebody who probably knows 99% of <laughs> silent film. Honestly, you know, and, and I don't mean this,
1: like, to, to make anybody blush here, but we're going to introduce our guest. It is the film critic Mariah Gates. And she is maybe, I mean, she's got to be among the world's preeminent silent film scholars. We literally were just talking to her before we press record about, her the movies that she watched last year and logged on Letterboxd. And she said that on average, she logs about 800 movies a year on Letterboxd. So uh, she's seeing quite a few more movies than I am. And Brad, if anyone is going to be able to stand in my corner, like Charlie Chaplin in this boxing scene in this movie, it's <laughs> Mariah. So
0: Mariah, thank you for being here today. How are you? Is, is Mariah going to be the referee standing between
2: us? <laughs> I, I could be that. I could be that. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here. I love talking about silent movies. Anytime someone's interested, I'm like, I, I, I have things to say. <laughs> so maybe too many things to say.
1: Well, let me ask this. I think this is like a good introductory question because, you know, our podcast is built around the premise that a lot of the movies that we're watching are being introduced to Brad for the first time. As someone who has seen as many silence as you have. You know, we talk all the time about the fact that, like, 90% of silent films have been lost to time and deterioration. But even among the 10% that survive, I feel like we really only talk about a small handful of them. And, you know, it's for good reason. These are great, great movies that are still mimicked and, and parodied and lifted from today. Does it ever get old to you to talk about the same, like, five silent films all the time?
2: no, i I do like it when I am with my my people, and I can talk about a deeper cut um film. I could talk about John H. Collins or, you know, some of these directors that he died in the nineteen nineteen Spanish influenza. So, um, <laughs> no, a lot of people have seen his films. But um the fact that there are some silent films that normal people will watch is and I, not to put all silent film fans under the category of abnormal, but I think I think you have to be a little <laughs> abnormal to watch as many as some of us do, is a testament to to what you said that some of these films truly are transcendent. Um I love all of the silent era. It's about 40 years worth of cinema and it's as I was I think I was saying earlier, um before everyone was listening um, that it's a specific mode of, of art. It's a different type of art. It's a different I mean within those forty years, there's different modes of storytelling. And that's why each decade practically, and sometimes every five years, you have different ways of making a film. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that some of those films are still watched today and and you can put Chaplin in front of children and and they see the magic, or you can put um one of my favorite screenings ever was the the Mark of Zorro with Douglas Fairbanks. Mm. I watched that with a, bu- a bunch of eight-year-olds, I think, um, in San Francisco, maybe 10 years ago. And they were cheering just as if he was Batman or something.
1: Yeah. Um, mm. So the fact
2: that some of these movies are so timeless um, that children can watch them or, you know, it, whatever age you are, you can come to it. It's 100 years old. This one's not quite 100 years old, but it's getting there. Um, and mm-hmm. people love it the same exact way, I think, is testament to the height of this artistry for some of these films.
0: Yeah, I, it honestly is an il- interesting illustration of a question I've always had, which is like, you know, music has been around for forever, but we, from a certain era, we only really remember Beethoven, Bach, like these big names. And I'm always curious, like, when you think about music from the 1960s, like, how long will the Beatles last? Hmm. And like, yeah, I feel it, like there's 2000... already there's
2: already young people who don't like them. Um, yeah,
0: right. <laughs> yeah, but like 150 years from now, like, how many of their songs will will people remember? Is it is it just going to be one or two? And it's interesting to look back on film because I think you you have that question kind of being answered because we're getting to the point where these films are a hundred years old. Yeah, and what what lasts and like mm-hmm. you said you know I'm, I'm looking at city lights here there's 188,000 uh rankings on imdb for this movie so it's not like it's a not well seen film yeah exactly brad you know i if i can wax poetic
1: here for a minute one of the things i love about silent film and i have obviously not seen nearly as many as our guest today but it is timeless and it is so accessible to everybody from young to old you know, and this was the thing about Chaplin was it it, it spanned ages, it spanned classes. It was a, an iconic character that transcended all of the societal divisions in America and the movies themselves. Even today, you know, I I like to put my children down in front of the TV and, and have them watch quiet TV because there's a lot of loud uh, children's programming now. And so like we I try to do Mr. Rogers with them. And that worked like gangbusters for a couple years until they figured out what I was doing when I put Mr. Rogers on. (laughs) And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to try some Chaplin. I'm going to try some Buster Keaton. My son, my six year old, has watched the clip. uh, There's a specific clip from Modern Times, which we're going to watch in a couple weeks here, Brad, of uh, Chaplin being strapped into this newfangled feeding machine. Mm -hmm. And it is I mean, it's hilarious. I laugh out loud every time. I have never seen my son laugh as hard as he laughs at that clip every single time we play it. You know, and we, we just started watching uh, Buster Keaton. He has a short called One Week that is just absolutely hilarious. And it's so cool to see that without words and just with a little bit of reading comprehension, this kid is locked into these movies in a way that he's not with super bombastic, uh, you know, uh, sensory overload kind of children's programming that you get elsewhere today. Anyway, yeah, that's I mean, my plug for uh, sticking your kids in front of silent films.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, that's the reality. I mean, I, while I didn't grow up with silent films, I did grow up with like things like the Three Stooges. Mm-hmm. And so there's something about the physicality that children are drawn to. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, hey, like, put your kids down, have them watch Three Stooges, have them watch Charlie Chaplin, because they they have such an engaging manner a visualization that it, I had entertained me for hours and hours and hours. And I know it would any other kid. Uh, listen,
1: like people falling over and poop jokes are universal and they last forever. <laughs> and this movie has both of those things. So we're going to get into talking about them, Brad. We will set the stage for this movie and the, the context into which it was released in just a minute. But before we get there, it is time for America's favorite segment, which we call Brad Explains. Brad's going to give us the movie plots with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take with this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Brad Explains is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. Brad, I assume this was your first time seeing City Lights. Absolutely, it was. This is your first silent movie ever, right?
0: Yes. Okay. I, wh- I think I've said before, I've seen clips here and there. I I know I've seen the clip you were referring to from modern times. Okay, So it's, you know, but this is the first time I sat down and just watched it start to finish.
1: I was thinking that it would be difficult to do an episode on silent film. And so seasons and seasons ago, I started planning ahead for this. We used to splice in clips, audio clips of the movies into our episodes. And I was like, one day we will do Chaplin and I will have nothing to splice. And so (laughs) we kind of stopped doing that. But the more I think about it. There really is no difference in describing the plot of the movie, the mechanics of the movie here. So Mm -mm. uh, you've had seven years of practice leading up to this point, Brad. I'm going to give you 60 seconds on the clock to break down the plot
0: of this movie and go. City Lights is a film about a tramp in what I would assume to be New York City, uh, a New York City lookalike at the very least, who falls in love with a blind flower girl and is trying to do his best to win her love. He runs into a, uh, well, his his title is the erratic millionaire (laughs) who tries to kill himself because his wife has left him. Chaplin saves his life, and they become best drunken friends until he's not drunk anymore, and then he doesn't like him and doesn't remember him, but then he gets drunk again, and they hang out, but then he's not drunk, and, and they stop hanging out. But Chaplin, uh, the tramp finds a way to get into a boxing match in order to win money and he is given money from the millionaire to be able to help heal his his blind
2: uh, Five seconds. friend. And, and, and is that's it. is
0: he successful? you'll have to watch the movie to find out, Bob. (laughs) We're going to spoil everything (laughs) until the last five minutes, and then you have to watch that for yourself. I mean, it's only been out for, like, what, 89, 90 years? So, you Um, know.
1: Mariah, you have been waiting so patiently in the background here, and I appreciate you just letting us ramble. As we set the stage for this movie, can you give us, like, just a, a brief overview of the history of the character of the Tramp? This was Chaplin's... You know, like, honestly, it was the only character he played for decades. I don't know if I can adequately explain the hold that this character had on the American culture leading up to City Lights.
2: Yeah. Um, what's interesting is that Chaplin started out sort of like Keaton as a um, physical performer for the British version of vaudeville and was a, 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 com- a physical comedian his whole life. Uh, the Tramp was created... Uh, on this 1914 short film, so we're over 100 years, called Mabel's Strange Predicament, starring Mabel Normand, who is one of those stars who was so famous. And now no one knows who she is except a handful of people. Mm-hmm. But uh, Mabel Normand, everything Chaplin knew about working on screen, he learned from Mabel Normand. So, but essentially, he accidentally created this sort of trampy character. Um, He showed up in a few other shorts. He he was in uh, this other Keystone film called Kid Auto Races at Venice, which sounds exactly what it is. It's a bunch of kids doing auto races in Venice. Mm -hmm. Um, And slowly, his tramp clown character became this national and then later international phenomenon. But also aspects of the the visual um styling of the little tramp with the hat and the mustache came from a very famous French comedian called Max Linder, who had um just come to America and sort of was starting to uh influence American comedy. Because actually, film comedy really came out of France. Like a lot of things uh, in cinema, France was really the first international super stra- international comedians, superstar comedians, mostly were coming out of France. So you have Max Linder, you have Mabel Norman, now you have The Tramp, Charlie Chaplin, you search them all. Chaplin obviously is more remembered. Um, you can get like Blu-rays of <laughs> Chaplin's movies. You cannot get Blu-rays of Max Linder. Although I think <laughs> some of Mabel Norman's films are now on like Blu-ray sets. So there's at least that. Um, but obviously he was this, this uh probably I think, still the most famous face of the silent era. You you come kind of close with Buster Keaton. Um, and then you have the three American comedians everyone remembers, which is also Harold Lloyd. Mm-hmm. Um, those three guys are sort of who you remember now. But they all sort of came out of this earlier um, history of silent comedy that also came out of vaudeville. Like, almost everyone came out of vaudeville. So by the time this film came out 1931... Chaplin had been the superstar for 15 years mm-hmm. uh, or more. and But also, silent cinema had gone away. It was yep. uh, the, the Jazz Singers, 1927. By 1928, you started to have more and more very primitive, I would say, <laughs> uh, sound films. They're a, li- a little creaky. They're trying things. And some of the greatest silent films, um, truly, it, it was an art that was like ascendant. And then sound came in, and it went, like, in the gutter again. Um, and I don't know if it'll ever get back to 1928, frankly, but uh, that's that's another podcast. So Chaplin was in the middle of developing this when sound came in, and he was like, I don't care, and I'm very popular, so I'm going to do this movie, and people are still going to watch it. And people did watch it. And so 1931, you were seeing, like, pre-code, you know, gangster films. You had... Pretty much, it'd be like the equivalent of, um, you know, we're in the Marvel films now, right? It'd be the equivalent of like a Terrence Malick like spiritual movie in the forest <laughs> being the number one box office film. Right. Like, right. can you can you imagine that? But he was he was so popular that um, people were like, you know, well, Cagney can wait, or I'm gonna <laughs> gotta see Chaplin. And he uh, five years later made Modern Times, which yep. I think you said you're gonna be watching, also a silent film. But I do think his greatest work is these silent films, and that's partially because his face is so expressive, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure you noticed while watching this film, not something we can put on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like I don't think we can uh, put the essence of his eyes like in a sound, um, which is sort of the hard hard thing about writing and talking about silent film. And what I always find the most difficult is that there's something ineffable about the magic that comes off in a silent film um and you know there's that quote in sunset boulevard we had faces then and mm-hmm. i do think that mm. there is something about there's the faces. some truth to that yeah there really is something about the faces that made it into hollywood and the expressive eyes and the kind of talent that directors and and camera people found and yeah. were looking yeah. for that that brought something that isn't Necessarily there for uh, once you have sound there you know there's some actors who I think are still a little ineffable but it's 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 never been the same.
0: Well, I mean, Bob and I were talking about it before we got on here. The final scene of the film, yeah, like Charlie is acting his heart out, and it's incredible. And And like the close up on his
2: face, he said the reason it's so good is he's a not acting and b he underplayed it.
1: Mm-hmm. And you watch
2: that, and you're like, "What? <laughs> this is yeah. him underplaying yeah. it? <laughs> like, yeah. holy shit! It's incredible."
1: <laughs> we will get into talking about Chaplin the actor too, but I think that scene is a really great key into talking about Chaplin the filmmaker here, Brad, because this movie uses close-ups very sparingly. Like, most of this movie is done uh, either in in wide shots so you can see his whole body, or in like a two shot. You know, I'm thinking specifically of, like, the scene where he's getting ready to go box, and he's sitting across the table from the guy that he's going to box with, and they have them both framed in in the shot. But the reason that ending works so well is you don't see that face in close-up, it, you know, in that extreme of a close-up until the very end of the movie. And, and it's so effective because Chaplin knows how to play a shot where the camera is 15 feet away versus how to play a shot where the camera is six inches from his face, you know? And – Honestly, Brad, like I I'm so excited to dive into talking about the filmmaking behind this movie. So Chaplin uh, transitions from making shorts to making feature length films in 1921 when the movie The Kid comes out. So he's been doing it for a decade now and audiences have come to expect that a Chaplin film is going to be a big event. They're really expensive movies and they make a killing at the box office. Uh, He comes out with a movie in the late 20s called The Circus and The Circus is a great movie that has kind of. Like, I don't I don't want to say it's like fallen by the wayside because it's really, really revered. But it's kind of like when we talk about Hitchcock, Brad, and how you and I have reviewed now, like the four biggest Hitchcock movies. And then everybody Mm -hmm. kind of has like their fifth favorite Hitchcock movie. It's kind of like that with with the circus. It was a movie that Chaplin had a ton of personal outside stuff affecting. And it was really, really a hard period of his life the movie was successful, but it wasn't as successful as he wanted it to be. He doesn't win any Oscars for it, except they give him an honorary Oscar, which made him feel like even more embarrassed and insulted by it because Mm. the movie wasn't really good enough in their eyes to win competitive Oscars. Uh, And so that's when the jazz singer gets released and the world is going crazy for talkies and perhaps stubbornly, perhaps because he really did think this movie would work better as a silent. He decided to plow ahead with this movie as a silent. But he figured out that there were elements of the, the new sound that you could have basically imprinted onto the film that really worked in his favor. For the first time, he could put a score to the movie, and it would be the same score in the exact same spot at the exact same tempo as he's always wanted it to be. And so, the you know, the music is part of the movie. And then he also does this thing where he's really ragging on the crappy sound quality of early talkies because it, you know, I just imagine a a crowded theater, the lights go down, this movie starts, and this is an audience that's been used to like craning their necks to try to figure out what people are saying on this horribly recorded, you know, contraption for the last three years that we've had talkies. And the first thing you hear is Chaplin making fun of that because it fades up on this scene of a mayor dedicating uh, a statue and, and instead of a voice coming out of his mouth, it's Chaplin playing a kazoo and just going. <laughs> and it is like it's it's such a mean joke, but it is so silly and it's so funny and it perfectly sets the stage for what's going to happen in the movie.
2: Yeah, I, I when rewatching it this um, this week, I forgot how funny that sound cue is because it's sort of like the Peanuts Um, Yes, you know when the adults speak, (laughs) it's (laughs) like that. The um, and so it's it's funny because it's this in joke about sound, but it's also sort of similar to all of his his running um, not hatred, but running ragging of of um, organized yeah authority figures authority. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he's always he's always trying to find ways to cause chaos and he just starts this movie straight up being like his mayor is full of full of crap so we don't even need to listen and i love that he he doesn't give him um an inner title either so you don't you know
1: you don't know what he's supposed
0: to be saying
2: it's it's fine we don't need the speech (laughs) yeah
0: and and the best thing is as with any great comedian the inside joke works like everybody who was there in the time understood what he was trying to say but it still is funny if you have no idea the joke he's trying to make about, you know, talkies at the time. Like, here here we are, you know, 90 years later, and it's still just funny to hear. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it still is something that's amusing. I think it's it's stuff like that that makes him stand out to me, that it doesn't just work as an inside joke. It also works as just a funny gag, you know, audio gag in the film.
1: Brad you know, it's it's hard to talk about performances when we think about this movie because it's, like, so dominated by Chaplin's character. And we will mm-hmm. obviously be talking about Chaplin's performance throughout this episode. But where would you like to start in terms of, like, other players in the cast that you really liked their performance?
0: Honestly, I really liked the butler. Mm-hmm. And I really liked the other fighter who he was fighting against. Yeah. Like, I think we'll get to Virginia Cheryl and Harry Myers, who play the millionaire and the blind girl. But if we're just going to give a quick shout out to anybody else, I really enjoyed the butler who you know engages in some of the physical comedy with Chaplin, as well as the he seems to be titled a prize fighter. <laughs> so both of those actors are actually people that Chaplin had worked with a ton
1: in the past, and they were kind of like part of his company. And uh, the guy that plays the butler, we'll actually see him again in modern times in, like, a really small role when we watch that movie. But, yeah, man, I'm totally with you. They're both just, like, the great thing about a Chaplin movie is, and this is kind of, like, the terror of working with Chaplin from all those stories that I've read. He was such a micromanager. The, The little boy that is blowing, like, spit wads at him at the end of the movie, he gave an interview years and years later where he talked about how, on set, Chaplin would would basically be saying, okay, here's how you blow like a spit wad at me. And then he would go mimic that and then run over here and mimic him reacting to it. And then he would mimic what the other little boy is supposed to be doing. And then he would tell every extra in the background exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And it's such a choreographed, you know, uh, I don't know, symphony kind of a thing, but it also makes for, Every tiny performance in the movie being pitch perfect. Like I I was laughing my ass off at the moment where Chaplin driving a Rolls Royce dressed to the nines, you know, pretending he's rich, but needing a cigar, sees one sitting, (laughs) sitting on the ground, pulls his Rolls Royce over and just knocks a hobo over so that he could pick up the cigar for himself. And then the (laughs) reaction shot of the homeless guy is like
0: it's pitch perfect, dude. Yeah, dude, th- there's just so many little gags throughout the film that I like. I don't even think that directors would understand how to keep things moving the way Chaplin does here. Like th- He just keeps things moving, and there's so many little things kind of happening on the side that, I, honestly, I want to go back and watch this again because I know for a fact that I missed a lot. And I'm like, I, I need to come back to this. Mm-hmm. And here's the beautiful thing, Bob. Under 90 minutes. Uh,
1: an eighty-two-minute movie, as God mm. intended. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, some of the best
2: things about Chaplin is that he's such a visual storyteller that there are always like multiple mm-hmm. gags going at once. Even in some of the scenes that are really heartfelt, there's often something else if you if you're no if you if it's if you're looking there. Mm-hmm. Um like he understood that every part of the frame should have some sort of information should make you think of something.
1: One of the things I love is, is how um, intuitively he uses the camera. And so there's a very famous story, Brad, that I will now introduce you to about how uh, he and the, the co-star of this movie, Virginia Cheryl did not like each other at all. They did not get along. Uh, She actually got fired for a period of time and then rehired by Chaplin when he basically figured out he had shot too much to replace her. So he just had to bring her back. Uh, But the scene that he could not crack for months and months and months of the shooting schedule was their introduction to each other. How is how are we going to convey that she mistakes him for being a rich man visually? Because obviously you can't do it, you know, through dialogue and she's blind. So there has to be something that she encounters, that she hears that would cue into her that he was a rich person and start this whole kind of comedy of errors. And it didn't occur to him until way later in the schedule, the idea of a slamming car door that a rich guy is getting into. And and she thinks that it's him. But leading up to that moment, Brad Chaplin had done 342 takes of this scene and it was <laughs> trying to work it out as they were acting it out. And that's kind of what drove Virginia Cheryl crazy about it was because she could tell that he didn't really have it figured out and he just was waiting for the inspiration to come by making them continue to perform it until something (laughs) happened. He did
0: more takes on that than we have done episodes of this podcast. (laughs) But like far and away more, like 150 more takes. Yeah, yeah.
2: I was going to say, when they talk about filmmakers like Fincher or Kubrick who did lots and lots of takes, Chaplin is absolutely on that list. I think this is the record record uh, on uh, for his uh, in terms of how much, but did she shot he, because he made the film over two years. Um And not, normally when you hear like, oh, it took two years to make this movie, like normally that's because, you know, like Claudia Wheel's Girlfriends or something where she was shooting it on a Saturday once a week, you know, when she had the money mm-hmm. kind of thing. Like it was not common for a movie unless it was like Von Straheim's Greed. It was not common for a movie to take that long to make. And, you know, in the teens when he was starting out, those filmmakers that were making the two-reelers, one and two-reelers, they were making one of those a, a week. It was yeah. like a new TV episode. Um, he shot over 300,000 feet of film for this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the equivalent of, like, when, to, not to bring Malik up again, when Malik made the Thin Red Line and he shot so much footage, there was a, supposedly an eight-hour assembly cut. <laughs> of that film before <laughs> you know, before they whittled it down to what we ended up seeing. That's why like half the cast for the thin red line is not in the movie. Um, but eventually from the three hundred thousand feet of film, the the eighty-nine minute film is yeah, eight thousand just eight eight eighty one hundred feet. So like that's that's, That's a lot of film that yeah. didn't yeah. end up on the cutting room floor. And, you know, it's like with digital, you can you can just keep shooting with film. You have to keep buying more film. You have to, mm-hmm.
1: um, you know. Oh, so I was going to say uh, one of the things I love about him as the as a director, though, is that he he so clearly understands how to move the camera. And that scene in particular is such a very simple pan. Like it is it is like the two of them standing against this gate. And then, when she hears the car door slamming, the camera very quickly, it's like almost like a whip pan. It pans right over to what she's hearing, and then very slowly pans back over again as Chaplin sneaks away. And one of the things that the silent, the great silent directors did so well was to know how to choreograph the action and how to consider the camera as like another member of that kind of dance, I guess. You know, mm-hmm. I remember talking to you about the movie RRR last year and how everybody freaked out about the the choreography to that song, Not To Not To, and the very famous clip that's been gift to death now of just them, like, fixed in the center of the frame as it kind of tracks to the right, and they just follow it as they're dancing, like, as hard as they can. And I remember, you know, making a post about this and saying, like, this is what American directors of modern musicals are not remembering anymore, is that the most compelling camera move in the musical is just to put your subject in the dead center of the screen and then either track or pan along with them because bodies in motion are compelling in themselves. Like you don't have to make the most complex camera move to go along with it. And I think Chaplin understood that better than almost any director because he knew what he was capable of and he knew what he could choreograph in front of the camera. And so the camera moves are never superfluous. You know what I mean? It's just exactly what needs to be done. And if it tracks a little bit, if it wheels around the boxing ring a little bit, it's just because that's what's needed for that shot. And then everything you see is creating enough movement to accentuate that.
2: Yeah, and he said that he thought of himself as a dancer always. And I think mean, you see that in in the way he performs as the tramp, but also you see it, like you said, in the, in the fluid camera movements. And I think some of the reasons he had issues with some of his um leading ladies he did not repeat leading ladies that often was he didn't uh, always cast somebody who thought of themselves as a dancer and thought like a dancer who understood mm. the that I, that way of making a film um whereas like some of the actors like you you mentioned the 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 boxer he was a keystone cop they had known they'd known each other you know going back since the beginning of, of each of their careers. And the mm-hmm. Keystone Cops, while, you know, very funny, were sort of sim- more similar to dancers than than any other kind of comedy because that, that running, chasing, athleticism that they mm-hmm. did and the tumbling and the falling is sort of a mixture of dance and acrobatics, really. Um, and I, th- I think you see the more successful... Co-stars for Chaplin are ones who came out of that earlier era of filmmaking because they understood that way of filmmaking, as opposed to the sort of matinee idol drama style actresses who who aren't quite as <laughs> used to thinking <laughs> about their bodies that way. <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Um, and yeah. what's
2: interesting about this coming in 1931 is that you stopped seeing that kind of fluid camera movement, but in the nineteen late nineteen hundreds, like from 1925 to 1928, those silent era films tend to be the ones people watch the most. I think because they have that beautiful camera movement and they've gotten to a point where they've been doing it for 30 years and they understand how to choreograph big scopes or to move the camera in such a way that you feel like you're immersed in the film. But in 1931, most films weren't doing that. They had the creaky sound. They had more stationary camera shots again because you had to worry about Where's the microphone, right? And right. You, you do see some filmmakers making pre-codes that have a little more finesse to them, and they tend to be again the filmmakers who started out as silent film directors in the teens, and so they've been doing it for so long that just adding adding a um, microphone didn't you know salt their game too much. But right. you, but the bulk of what you saw in the early 1930s is it, the camera movement just it's gets really stationary. And so you have a movie like this um, come out and people are so used to, you know, not this (laughs) anymore. (laughs) Like they've gotten they've gotten used to um, the the new normal and suddenly they're reminded of what film could be. And I do think that's part of why this has a legacy to it in a way that few films from this year do.
1: That's such a good point. I didn't think about that. I mean, it's kind of the opposite of what I was saying, because I'm like, oh, you know, uh, Chaplin's not moving the camera in these really intricate wonders like Spielberg would, you know, and that's just because the camera is huge and bulky at that point. But also, what you're saying is because of the the kind of restrictions <laughs> that a lot of these directors were facing with the implementation of sound, they just didn't move the camera at all. Yeah, and so this probably looked ten times as fluid to the normal person who was used to just seeing a stationary camera. I love that.
2: Yeah, you. It's really like. Pre code's an interesting era because the stories get really racy, um, and costumes get really, really beautiful and scandalous. But the camera work is leaves a lot to be uh <laughs> except for the buzzy, obviously the Buzzy Berkeley ones, because he again he was a choreographer and he figured out ways you don't need the sound to really work when you're like going underneath someone's legs, right? right. Um so he was able to do a lot of what's beautiful and known in his choreography because the sound was added later for all those dance numbers that Busby Berkeley um, shot. But when you're doing like a a costume drama or like a Joan Crawford film or something where it's dialogue heavy, you end up having less interesting camera moves for quite a while because you would hear everything with the boom mic. Mm -hmm. And, And I think those films tend to be sometimes a little creaky, and I, I love them. I love the pre-code era. I pretty much love every era. It's hard hard for me to find an era that I don't like. But you have to kind of have more context in a way, and so yeah. uh, it's it's another era that's not well-remembered. I think pre-codes are starting to have a little more of a um, resurgence. I think Criterion Channel has done a great job of trying to get people to watch them. But, um Again, you just you have a film like this and you look at this film and then you look at most of the other films from 1931 and you're like, maybe we did like maybe we should just stop having sound for a while again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Brad, real quick, before we go to break, because we do need a break. I, I want to say up front, like we've been talking about all of the incredible technical achievements of this movie and and all of the the historical context that it was released into. I just want to say very plainly: this is a very silly, very funny movie for most of its yeah. runtime. It, I mean, it's super profound and and yeah. heart wrenching at the end, but like, this is a hilarious comedy.
0: And well, I was I was gonna say the boxing scene, the physicality of that scene reminded me of watching Looney Tunes growing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like it it feels like something where you have Bugs Bunny being chased. Uh, by by the hunter, whatever his name is. Elmer Fudd. Elmer Fudd, yeah. Like, it feels like that, but it's live action, and it's hilarious, and that there's so many visual gags in that scene that, I, yeah, Bob, I am with you. This is just a fun movie that just so happens to be technically brilliant. Yeah. <laughs>
1: well, and that's a, that's another thing. Like, talking about that boxing scene, You know, I think that people who have never seen a Chaplin movie, they have an idea of Chaplin as like this funny pratfall guy. He's he's a guy that's going to get knocked over or do something silly with his body. But what I love is like when you actually watch the gags, not only are the gags incredibly intricate with their physicality, but they also have so much like character motivation behind them. And he does a great job of setting up the gag. There's like 10 minutes of build up to the actual fight Mm -hmm. and Chaplin gets roped into fighting so he can win money for this blind girl and the guy that he's going to fight is going to split the money with him 50 50 because he just wants a quick buck but then that guy gets a telegram and says get out of town the cops are after you so they pull another guy off the street and he's big and lumbering and he's just going to beat the hell out of charlie chaplin and so then you get this great sequence where chaplin's trying to like flatter him and, and like be real chummy with him so he won't get beat up and then when they finally get into the ring Chaplin's taking every opportunity to take cheap shots at this guy so that he can knock him out because he's scared and when the guy finally starts to get woozy you get that great little beat of Chaplin like pushing down on his shoulders to try to get him (laughs) to fall quicker it's just like i think the thing that people don't realize if you've never watched one of these movies is that it's not just a guy falling over for a gag it is like it's incredibly well thought out and we'll get around to this when we do our let's make it a double but I think that the influence of Chaplin's comic timing and the way these gags are set up are still being mimicked to this day in cinema,
0: Brad. Yeah. No, I, I'm with you, man. I, I think that it's almost like when you see a, a brilliant stand-up comedian, the way that they they intro with a joke. And then three or four times throughout the set, they they refer back to that joke, right? And they just weave it into their other jokes, and there there's a brilliance to it. And mm-hmm. you see that with Chaplin here, that he he sets the stage and then he uses that stage throughout the rest of the film, building on itself to to build better and better jokes. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: Brad. I like to think that our podcast builds to better and better moments. So, (laughs) (laughs)
0: Like like when we invite people like Mariah on. Exactly. (laughs) Let's hit pause here. Let's
1: go try this Town Branch Rye, and then we'll come back and finish talking about City Lights. What do you say? Let's get to it. All right. So today we are checking out Town Branch Rye. Brad, Town Branch is a distillery in Lexington, Kentucky that is near and dear to my heart because Mm -hmm. it is the first distillery I ever took a tour of on the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. Hey. When I first moved to the Lexington area, uh, my wife and I went to Alltech, which is the giant conglomerate that owns Lexington Distilling Company. They also... Fun fact. uh, Go ahead. They make Kentucky Bourbon Barrel. That's right. Which is incredible. They also have a brewery on site. And so when you go on the tour... You you check in, you pay your $10 or whatever it is, and they give you a little cup full of tokens. And the cool thing about this distillery tour is that you can cash in the tokens to try samples of whatever you want along the way. So you could spend your four or five tokens on four or five beers to try. You could spend them on all the spirits they make, or you could mix and match. So it's a really, really fun and super customizable tour tour. Uh, that was actually the first tour I took my parents on, too, and they came to visit when we lived in Kentucky. I just think it's a really fun entry point. Like, if you're not all consumed by being a bourbon bro, and you just want to kind of dabble in the <laughs> world of bourbon, it's a really good starter-level distillery tour. So, Town Branch Rye. Here's the thing, Brad. I don't know what to do with this, because... The bottle that I have sitting in front of me right now has been discontinued. I don't know if you will remember, I'll send you a picture of what the bottle used to look like. They have since rebranded and they've kind of relaunched Town Branch as a brand in these nifty looking square bottles. The thing about the old Town Branch rye is that I can't actually tell if everything in this bottle was distilled on Altech's campus in Lexington. And this is just a little insight into the jargon that they put on labels when when you flip a bottle over and on the back of it, it says something like this whiskey was made in Indiana or something, uh, but bottled by Jack and Jill's distillery in Bardstown, Kentucky, like mm-hmm. they didn't make it. They got it from Indiana. One really confusing word that they use sometimes is produced by. Because what does that even mean? Like there's no regulation behind produced by It's Not it doesn't say distilled by So I have no idea because it says produced by Altec's Lexington Distilling Company
0: in Lexington, Kentucky. I don't know if that means they distilled all this or not. By produced, you mean like pulled it out of a hat like a magician. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I produced this. (laughs) I know that their more recent label
1: says that it was all distilled on site. So this may be a combination of stuff they distilled and then they blended with older. Uh, stock that they sourced from somewhere else. Here's the other thing about it. When I tried to look this up online, even though they make a lot of whiskey and they're a fairly, you know, a fairly sizable player in the industry now, there's not a lot of information about this whiskey online. I know that some of our more learned friends probably know the ins and outs of Altec. So like Zach Johnston, yeah, uh, hit me up after this episode and let me know what was going on with the old label town branch. But for now, Brad, I'm just going to (laughs) assume this was all made at
0: the distillery in Lexington. All I hear you saying is welcome to film and whiskey where everything's made up and the points don't matter. (laughs) This is why whiskey scares people off,
1: Brad, like people who aren't in the world of whiskey. All this jargon, all this like, does any of this matter? At the end of the day, does the whiskey taste good or not? And that's what Mm -hmm. we're here to figure out. This is a 100 proof rye whiskey. It does not say that it is straight rye whiskey, which is what the new label says. So I have no idea how freaking old this is either. So (laughs) I'm going to assume it's at least four years old because there's no age statement on the bottle. Let's
0: give it a try, Brad. What are you picking up on the nose? Uh, The nose here has some vanilla, some some clove, some some rye coming through and then almost like a like a spiced cherry. And it's kind of unique and interesting. I'm intrigued by it. I will give it a seven and a half out of ten.
1: I am not ashamed to admit that drinking rye is always a humbling experience for me, Brad, because I like to think that with as many whiskeys as we've tried, I have a fairly discerning palate now. But there's something about the rye grain that I can never pick up as many things on the nose as you can with rye. Like, I just can't. I smell rye. It smells (laughs) like a rye. It doesn't smell like a minty rye. I think in my mind, I have two categories of rye, and it's like minty rye and dill rye. And this Mm -hmm. is more dill rye for me, which I'm cool with. Peated scotch and non-peated scotch. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I like it a lot. I Actually, if I'm going to drink rye, I want it to taste like rye. Like, I want it to go all the way. And this one Mm -hmm. really has a strong rye grain with that almost kind of sour dill presence to it. A little bit of sweetness kind of
0: undergirding it. I like it a lot. I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the nose. Yeah. And when I got into the palate, there's some really nice complexity here that that isn't overwhelming. I I think that there was a little bit of a citrus flavor in the middle of my palate. There was some honey on the tip of my tongue. And then there there was just this really nice feeling of like a a fresh, uh, spongy spice cake. That, ha- that, you know, wasn't as sweet as it was kind of savory. Uh, and then at the at the back end, I, I finished after drinking it for a little bit and felt like, you know, there's just some really nice vanilla here. So 8 out of 10 on the palate for me. I do not like this. <laughs> this, uh, whew.
1: You know, sometimes, like, you can just kind of tell that some- something's not working for you. It doesn't mean it's not good, but, like, it just doesn't work for you. For me, the way this manifested was, like, really young rye grain. And then it tipped into, like, super bitter grapefruit. Like, not sour, but really, really bitter. And then the bitterness kind of fed back into the youthfulness of it. And it's, like, this self-perpetuating cycle. And by the time I swallowed, I was like, oh, man, I don't like this at all. It started off okay, <laughs> it was like one of those experiences where you're like, hmm, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> like the more <laughs> I dri- ah. <laughs> it it's just it kept getting worse and worse for me. This is a four point five out of ten on the on the palate. Four point five. Yeah, man, I'm not. This is uh, wow. And like the longer I sit here
0: with this aftertaste, it is not not doing it for me, man. Man, well, I'm just going to I'm just going to finish out my finish and balance scores Uh, seven and a half on the finish. There's some oak, some vanilla, some rye, nothing too crazy, but nothing, nothing bad, nothing sour, bitter, gross or anything. Uh, Anybody who tells you otherwise is crazy. Uh, Seven out of ten on the balance, decently complex, has some good flavors, but nothing that makes it stand out. Hmm.
1: Uh, I'm on sip number three. And it is approaching palatability at this point. Um, <laughs> but yeah, man, this is like the closest thing that I like. I don't know what I could compare it to. It's like if a whiskey could get skunked, this is like what what it's doing in my mouth. Does that make sense? Like, I know you're not having the mm-hmm. same experience, but I'm trying to parse out what part of it of this is just like a really herbal experience versus youthfulness on the grain Versus something really off in how bitter it is. And it's just not working for me, man. I'm going to give it, um, I don't know, a 5 out of 10 on the finish. It's a little bit better than the palette was for me. But I'm like slightly worried that something is off with my bottle. <laughs> mm. um, and therefore, the balance is way out of whack on this bad boy. Uh, It started off okay, and it slowly tipped into fearing for my safety. So I am going to give it a five point five on the balance.
0: Man. Yeah. So the value here, Bob, I'm seeing this bottle at forty nine dollars. Is that what you're having at? Uh, yeah, Brad, that looks about right. Now, again, this bottle that we're drinking out of has been
1: discontinued, which is really hard. It's hard to review a product that they may or may not have completely overhauled at this point. And I would be more than happy to come back around to this someday and try the new Town Branch rye, if in fact it is new and not just the same whiskey with a new label on it. So uh, let's be very clear here. Old Town Branch rye. I don't know how much it would cost you to find a bottle of it. I would not advise you seeking this out by any means, but we're going to score it as if it is priced at the new Town Branch Rye price. And at that price, Brad, I cannot advise against this strongly enough. This is <laughs> this is the most visceral reaction to a whiskey on a regular episode that we've done in a long, long time for me. Yeah. Uh, well, What's your score for a $50 bottle then? Hmm. I trust your palate enough to think that maybe I'm just reacting weird to this and that it's not just like a a horrible product, but I trust my palate enough to know that I would never spend money
0: on this. So I'm going to give it a three out of 10 on value. Yeah, I actually gave it a five out of 10. I I don't think this is a great value. I think that overall it's it's a decent product. That should be about $10 to $15 cheaper. Like, if this was a $30 to $35 bottle, I'd say, yep, this is really solid value. But at $50, uh, I don't know. It's just just not quite as worth it for me. I'm coming to a 35.5 out of 50, Bob. Where are you at in the teens? I am coming
1: out to a 25.5 out of 50. So that's bringing us to an average of a 30.5 or a 61 out of 100. I absolutely and unequivocally do not recommend trying or buying this. However, I will say I absolutely recommend going on the Alltech Tour. Like, I'm I'm shocked at how I don't remember this being this bad, which is making me wonder if, like, if they did, in fact, just overhaul the entire, you know, product itself.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, maybe they did, and and like you said, we are both big fans of Alltech. They make great beer, they make good whiskey. So go check them out if you are in Lexington. Uh, I think I would, man. I don't. It doesn't matter if I recommend this, Bob. You can't get it anymore. <laughs> so go drink, go drink Kentucky bourbon barrel ale. It's delicious. It's real good. It's my wife's that's, favorite beer. That's 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 my recommendation <laughs> for the day. Get it on tap if you can. That I will say, like. In the bottle, it's like a solid seven and a half beer, but getting it on tap is like a nine and a half out of ten experience. Mm-hmm. All right, man. Uh, That was a letdown,
1: but you know what's not a letdown is talking to our new friend Mariah Gates about silent movies. So what do you say we get back into
0: talking about City Lights? Let's get to it. All right, everybody. That was Town Branch Rye, a whiskey that... Is might might be one of the most simply named whiskeys we've drank in a long time, Bob yeah, They really have been a mouthful lately It's nice to just <laughs> say, Town Branch Rye And be
1: done with it <laughs> That's it Well, Brad, it is time for us to get into Our next segment of the day Canada's favorite segment, which we call Two Facts and a Falsehood
0: Brad is gonna try to stump you, Bob To our right And what is wrong Two Facts and a Falsehood
1: Two Facts and a Falsehood is the part of the podcast where Brad presents three items to me as fact about the making of this movie, one of which is a complete fabrication that Brad has made up, and it's my job to figure out which one is the lie. Brad, I believe I am sitting at 500 on the year right now. I had a comeback victory last week. Oh, no, I didn't. I had a defeat last week. You definitely had a defeat last week. I had a defeat. Thank you very much. Thanks, Vince, for that one. Vince Mancini (laughs) did not help me out on that one at all. Uh, so I think you're right. I am. I might be one under 500, which puts the pressure on Mariah to help me with this two facts and a falsehood. Brad, I am a little comforted by the fact that you don't know anything about silent movies.
0: Yeah, I feel <laughs> zero confidence. I almost wanted to, like, call a truce for the next four or five weeks, however long we're doing, Chaplin. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm going to soldier on ahead and see if I can catch you. I'll be honest, if I can catch you this week, I think I should just win for the season. (laughs) All right. Uh, With Mariah helping you, I I, I don't doubt that you will get this one. Well, I I am not sweating over here, so hit me with your two (laughs) facts and a falsehood. All right. Fact number one, one of Sir Charles Chaplin's friends, the famous illustrator Ralph Barton, was on set one day during the filming of the scene where Charlie and the blind girl meet His home movies, which appear in Unknown Chaplin from 1983, are the only known behind-the-scenes footage of Chaplin at work in costume as the Tramp. Hmm. Fact number two, the scene where Chaplin first meets the eccentric eccentric millionaire had to be reshot many, many times over due to Chaplin's insistence that Harry Myers was not, quote, falling properly, end quote, into the river. (laughs) Fact number three, Sir Charles Chaplin had invited Albert Einstein and his wife Elsa to join him at the Los Angeles premiere on January 30th, 1931. When the house lights came up, Chaplin was surprised to see Einstein's eyes were tearing over at the final scene. Hmm. Uh, I believe number three is a fact because I I know the first part of
1: that statement is a fact. I know he took Albert Einstein and his wife to the premiere, uh, and I like to think that Mr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein had uh, a heart and was affected by the end of this movie. (laughs) So I'm going to say three is true. One and two both sound plausible, but I might have to phone a friend here. Mariah, are you gravitating towards either of these as the falsehood?
2: I feel like there's more behind the scenes. That's what's catching me up there. Cause I know, I know that that documentary, but I feel like there's more behind the scenes than just the one movie
1: yeah the the in costume is what's throwing me off here yeah maybe he wasn't and you know what i actually was just watching the criterion blu-ray for city lights before we started recording and i had just started watching that behind the scenes footage uh so i know that that's a thing i know it exists but yeah is is it the only i don't know it's
2: definitely one of those like is this is this too much information and therefore it's wrong or is it too much information because that's exactly the truth i'm I'm a terrible phone friend here cuz I don't actually know. <laughs> Let's
1: All right, I will I will bite the bullet on this one. Um I'm going to say number 2 is the falsehood. Even though it sounds very plausible, uh I just think that it sounds a little too simplistic. And so I'm going to say Brad wrote that one. That sounds insulting now to Brad. I, I'm sorry,
0: Well, I didn't mean it like that, that Brad. That 100% <laughs> sounded insulting. Uh I will say uh, this: This is the disclaimer we always let our guests know. These are true, as IMDb says they're true. Mm. Yes, these, so these that... are lifted from the IMDb <laughs> trivia section. <laughs> However, Bob, you are correct. Number two yes. was the falsehood written by Simpleton Brad. I was just gonna say thank you, Mister Simplistic.
2: i feel terrible i didn't
1: mean it like that at all but it worked in my favor so do you feel terrible? i do not retract that statement at all (laughs) mariah has helped me pull ahead on the season and uh, i can lord it over you now for at least a couple more weeks brad Mm, yeah you're you're well you're welcome bob i suppose (laughs) all right let's get back into talking about this movie we have left out one huge component of the movie when it comes to actress virginia cheryl we haven't talked about her performance This is by far the performance that she is best remembered for. I think I said in the first half that they did not really get along at all. Uh, I don't think you can really tell. This is uh, a pretty exceptional pairing on screen. And, you know, their I don't want to say their chemistry is palpable. Uh, It kind of is. But I think their commitment to their characters and the way that they dramatically portray each of their respective states. You know what I mean? Him being down on his luck her having a disability. Brad, there's a great story of ha- Chaplin hiring her because he noticed that uh, she was very nearsighted. And so her way of kind of looking, like physically looking at her surroundings, made her the only actress that ch- that Chaplin screen tested that could play blind without being offensive. That's what that, was, that was his <laughs> his quote about it. So um, That's impressive. I think she's great in this movie, man. Yeah, I
0: think that she has an incredible softness to her Mm. that counteracts the physicality of, of of Chaplin's, you know, gesticulating and, and just the way he commands the screen. There's, there's a gentleness to her that draws you in and makes sense to why the tramp would fall in love with her. Mm -hmm. Does it, does that make sense? Oh, a hundred percent Mariah. Like when you think about all of and you were mentioning
1: this in the first half, like all of the, Partners that he shared the screen with over the years. Where would you rank her and this pairing?
2: I think they are really wonderful together. I, I think my favorite is is Paula Goddard from Me too. Modern Times. They, Me too. Because she's also a clown. But um in terms of what I think he wanted to achieve with with this movie, I think it was perfect casting, even if she was very difficult. And she wasn't ever really intending to be an actress. She was just one of those you know, modern women who got a divorce and moved, moved to LA and made a go of it kind of thing. It was a very 20s thing to do. Um, she's like of the first generation of women who really had the freedom to try to do something like that. Mm-hmm. Ended up in this movie. It's almost got fired for this movie. Made a few other movies. They're not, not very many of them are very good. Um, I like fast workers. It's got John Gilbert in it and Mae Clark, but Virginia Terrell is like, fifth cast in it and then Mm -hmm. really what's interesting is that she may have been a great actress in the silent era right because you, you mentioned she has that softness and she has um that sort of magical quality to her eyes that were valued in the silent era but if you watch some of her her later films and i think fast worker is the only one i've seen she's not great She's not a great actress in terms of speaking. so wow. the Shots fact that fired. She, yeah, so the fact that she <laughs> the fact that she ended up in basically the last great silent film other than modern times, the last great yeah. American silent film is is kind of uh, almost appropriate like this was the end of this kind of art, and she mm-hmm. she came to the to Hollywood right as this part of the art was dying and gave one of the last great silent film performances um in a film that became timeless but she's not timeless beyond yeah. it and i think that's because <laughs> her what the talent she had and maybe it was like cha- chaplin maybe the 3000 or 300,000 feet is just bad footage of her <laughs> i don't know but he was able he was able to find that magic in her and put it in this movie and i think it's both a testament to him as a director editor and her at least having that somewhere in her,
0: mm. you know, Mariah, even if even Mariah, if
2: that's only one percent of what was on the film,
0: right? <laughs> Mariah. Normally, Bob is the expert at giving underhanded compliments, <laughs> but man, <laughs> oh man, you are gunning for the crown, my friend. I was gonna it's say just,
2: it is. It's it's fascinating that she is so well known for this one role, and that's it. Um, yeah. And probably more people. I would I would venture to say more people have seen her one great performance than probably everything that like Louise Brooks ever did.
1: Mm-hmm. Right? And mm-hmm. so
2: no one is no one's looking at Virginia Terrell and Louise Brooks and saying like they're on the on par par or like Mabel Norman same part of it's Mabel Norman's films, or a lot of them are you know lost. But it's it's interesting and shows sort of the the with the irony of this business that it is, you know, they always say like it's not just the talent you have is who you know.
0: Mm-hmm. And in
2: this case, you know, she met Chaplin. She got in this mm-hmm. last great Chaplin movie, this last great silent era Chaplin movie. And,
0: and she was nearsighted. And
2: there so. it is. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so that's it was, what qualifies It's that you. alchemy. It's that, it's that alchemy that can't, you can't plan that.
1: So before we wrap up today, guys, I, I want to say that. You know, Brad, we, we could go on and on about our favorite gags in the movie. I talked about just that little throwaway moment of him shoving over a hobo. I don't know why I laughed so hard at that moment, but it really got me. There are so many like little throwaway gags in this movie. But I think on a deeper level than that, the reason that Chaplin's movies are remembered even more than his contemporaries like Keaton or Harold Lloyd is that they are unashamedly. Sentimental. I mean, they just are like they and they so perfectly pair the melancholy with the comedy. And I think that that is like the key to understanding Chaplin as a director. He had like a very keen sense of what the average person who was going to his movies was going through. Like this movie comes out as America is recovering, uh, not recovering from, is like plunging headfirst into the Great Depression. And it's a movie about insane wealth versus insane poverty and the tramp as kind of navigating this crazy world around him. And it's appropriate, Brad, that we just did another little mini series on Billy Wilder, because I think that we, we had a really great discussion about how Wilder uses uh suicide as like a plot Dude, device in a ton of I've, his movies.
0: I've been thinking about that this whole time where I'm like, I was completely wrong. Like, like Brian for, for reference, I kept saying, I was like, I feel like there's nobody in Hollywood that's willing to go in the like, hey, let's talk about suicide. You know, it'll be a fun time for everyone. And yet Billy Wilder does it. And then I come here and I watch, you know, Mr. Uh, Chaplin, Sir Chaplin. And he's it's like 15, 20 minutes into the movie and you got the millionaire trying to kill himself. Mm I mean, like, and it's not just done for
1: last. Like, that is one of the funnier gags in the movie. It's also, like, the darkest gag in the whole movie. But I think it's really indicative of the fact that Chaplin is always willing to go there. Chaplin is willing to show, you know, in in the movie The Circus, I started watching it with my six-year-old, and there's very funny gags. And then, like, the the main female protagonist in that movie is getting, like horrifically abused by her dad in that movie just like getting mm. the crap kicked out of her in Great multiple six-year-old oh material. dude i was like all right we're gonna press pause on the circus and let's go do, <laughs> let's go do something else now <laughs> but i think again the reason that it's so successful is that Chaplin knows when to use the dark moments of humanity to like to find the humor in it but then to also like leverage those moments into something like the ending of this movie, which we still haven't really talked about. I really want to discuss the ending of this movie,
2: <laughs> definitely one of those greatest endings of all time endings. you see the I'm sorry, you just you see that ending and you're like, why can't people why don't people not know how to end movies anymore? <laughs> like, yeah. I, that's what I literally said that out loud when I watched this a couple of days ago. It's like you don't know how to end movies anymore. It's like <laughs> you, this is a perfect ending. It's yeah. Great.
0: No. One hundred percent. The the beauty of the unspoken, like ride right off into the sunset. You don't you don't know if they get together. You don't know if all these things happen. But the the sentimentality of his smile, and he's still a little bit like bashful, and and it just slowly fades to black and and the end, mm-hmm. and it's. It's beautiful, and it's heartwarming, and you don't expect it after all the gags that have come throughout, like like you're expecting him to fall, you know, pratfall at the end, and yet it's utterly, and I'm going to use my favorite word, it's utterly sincere, Bob. Hmm.
1: You know, Brad. Like we don't often make comparisons to like great works of philosophy or religion on this podcast, but (laughs) listeners about to quote Gorgias. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners of this podcast know. You know, Brad and I both went to seminary, and so once in a while, something sparks our interest on the theological front. And I was watching this movie, and I kept thinking of this this story in the New Testament where uh, Jesus is talking about. uh, He encounters a woman at the temple that puts her last two mites into the offering and talks mm, about how she yeah. gave more than anybody else. And I think honestly, you know, Chaplin not known for his religious allegories, but <laughs> this is this is his most like nakedly uh religious symbolism iconography kind of movie for me because it is it is such a an obvious like self-pouring out kind of thing and it's so uh, obviously connected to the poor and to the impoverished and uh like i just love the ending of this movie where you don't know if this person who is at his most destitute he's been destitute the whole movie but when you see him come out of jail at the end of the movie and he's just literally wearing rags that are tattered and he has no Mm -hmm. shirt on underneath his his iconic jacket anymore it's like a pitiable state and for him to leave the character of the tramp in an even more pitiable state and asking the question of, like, will he be accepted like this? And the the last line of the movie to be her saying, yes, I can see now. It gives you the hope, but it never actually shows you the payoff. And I think that is exactly why it's the perfect ending for this movie. It's ambiguous, but he still won't let you leave without holding out hope that the rest of the world will be as sacri- self-sacrificial
0: as the tramp is. Mm, dude, a- and even like that line of like, yes, I can see now, like that that for me just sounds like Jesus calling out like he who has ears, <laughs> let him hear. Well, I like, think like there's there's a
1: very uh, like, again, like the way that uh, I was reading in uh, a book about City Lights today and the the author was commenting on how. There is a supernatural kind of element to this miracle cure for for blindness mm-hmm. that this doctor is healing, you know, uh, the poor for free and it's a miracle and all you have to do is come to him. Like it it is a very obvious kind of symbolism in this movie and I I don't know to what end. Like I don't really know why Chaplin is is being so overt with it. But I really just I just do love the idea of this movie coming out in the middle of the Great Depression about sympathy with and i don't know solidarity with the poorest of the poor and Mm -hmm. using the tramp to exemplify that
0: and also kind of bashing on the millionaire a little bit (laughs) (laughs) like he loses his wife he he has thousands of dollars stolen from him well not stolen he he gives it away and forgets that he gave it away it's a robin hood thing you know yeah totally totally (laughs) mariah when you think about this movie you know obviously we're over
1: here talking about theology and everything like what is your big takeaway in terms of like the overarching sentiment of the movie and what it's trying to communicate at the end?
2: I, I liked your point about it having a little glimmer of hope at the end. I think a lot of Chaplin's films wrestle with melancholy, um, and wrestle with systems that are uh not, for lack of a better word, fair. Mm-hmm. Um even even though the American dream is that everyone with a little gumption can make it right, but that's not this. That's not how the systems are actually set up. Mm-hmm. And a lot of his movies, especially his his features, sort of investigate that idea. Like the kid is all about um, uh, not to spoil the kid, but uh, it's about poverty and about um, living on the street and as as a child and wanting to adopt a child and. The issues of of like who's allowed to be a parent and who's actually got the best um, intention for what is a family, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful film. Jackie Coogan's fantastic in it, but uh, it's it's a lot of his films look at these systems and look at how uh, someone like the Tramp will come in and he doesn't care about the systems and <laughs> he's just kind of flumbling through. Mm-hmm. Um, in between, he's sort of a um, like a what's a trickster kind of he's yeah. like the coyote god right and he's yep. just sort of in between the lines liminal space kind of person and, and shows you the folly of, of systems and the folly of the idea that things are fair things were ever fair yeah. not just in america but like anywhere but but at, even though that's that bleak line is always there he always is on a place of but maybe
0: mm-hmm. right <laughs> mm-hmm. but
2: maybe maybe with love Things, well, even as the bad system is is still in place, well, we can find a little paradise for ourselves. And I, I think that's that's part of why his films are even more timeless than even Buster Keaton, whose films are, are maybe funnier. I think they're funnier. Mm. But they're definitely not as deep in terms of the emotions they try to evoke yeah. in its viewers. Well, and uh, you know,
1: if this all isn't your cup of tea, dear listener, uh, there is a joke about an elephant pooping in this movie. So, like, you get you get the best of both Which,
2: worlds. Which, I have to say, I don't know if you saw Babylon. Oh, I yeah. loved Babylon. The fact that people were upset about that, and I was like, okay, but do you love City Lights? <laughs> like, all of this, i mean like, it's there. <laughs> so... I, when I was rewatching this, I was like, ah. It's a reference. <laughs> Damien Chazelle knew what he was doing. That, that, I love that movie. Um, oh, that great. movie's really smart, and I feel like a lot of people who know just enough to not know everything he's doing thinks that it's not as smart as it is, but it's a very smart movie. Um, and and the, the main thing that every silent comedian knows is, to your point, people falling down and poop jokes. Are funny and barf (laughs) jokes. Like of that it's funny. It's funny in Babylon. It's funny in the sound joke in Babylon where it's like, who's gonna want sound? And then the guy like sh in the um in the (laughs) stall. That's so funny. Like I watched that movie three times. I laughed every time.
1: That's a great, that's a great timeless,
2: timeless joke. And um, so he the thing that's great about Chaplin is he does both those things. He has this very big bra heart. And then he just does the the, it's slapstick for a reason, you know, It's, it's so you get both. You get everything.
1: Well, on that note, if we can have both, Brad, I think this is a good segue into our final segment of the day, which we call Let's Make It a Double. We're near the end of the episode, so thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's a struggle. It's the final segment of the day, now let's make it a double. Let's make it a double is the part of the show where we pair this movie up with another film to make the perfect double feature. We were kind of uh, walking Mariah through the outline of our show before we hit record, and she said, Oh, I've already got something for that segment. <laughs> so I want to turn the floor over to you, Mariah. What is your let's make it a double film?
2: So I'm I'm actually torn between two films. So I want to pre- proposition two separate double features.
0: <laughs> no, let's double do it.
2: feature number one. If you want to stay in the silent era, double feature number one is 1928's Lonesome, which is also a Criterion film, so it's mm-hmm. easy to, to get on Blu-ray. Um, and it's about this couple played by Barbara Kent and Glenn Tyrod who meet at Coney Island and they fall in love, all in a whirlwind, 24 hours. And it's all about modern life and the isolation of city living and what it is to connect with somebody and the magic that it, to ha- be in a city of millions of people and find your person. Mm. Um, and it's another short one. I feel like it's like 70 something minutes, 75 minutes, 70, 69 minutes. I don't know. There's two different things. It has some sync sound in it as well. Um, it's just beautiful. And I think pairs nicely with the the romantic comedy side of City Lights. Um, but on double feature number two, if you want melancholy, Knights of Kiberia, the Fellini film, mm. starring his wife Juliana Messina, who was often referred to as the female chaplain for her expressive face. And specifically the um, how can it ever yeah, how it keeps getting worse and worse and worse for the tramp in City Lights. Uh, Kaviria goes through a lot of trials and tribulations and things get really bad. Um, and she's just too trusting and don't be trusting in this world. It is not a world for innocence. Mm. but by the end, again, it leaves you with some hope and it leaves you, she's at her lowest point. I don't want to spoil why, but she's in is literally the worst possible place you could possibly be as a, like a single woman alone in the world. And it ends with this beautiful smile, very similar to the way City Lights ends. And you realize the like, she's still got her, you know, her coat on her back and she's got her smile and she's got her feet. (laughs) Things can be, things are looking up. And and so there are these two movies that are for people who are like, ah, everything's terrible, but at least I'm alive. (laughs) So that's that double feature.
1: I love that. (laughs) All right, Brad, you have uh, just seen your first silent movie ever. What would you pair it up with?
0: All right. Th- this is going to be nowhere near what has just been offered. I, I I, think I might give two double features as well. The first one is going to be some like it hot. I just think that Wilder has so much f- philosophically in common with with Chaplin And I I think that there's so much going on there that just feels like it would vibe together that I think those two movies together would be a great, Mm. great double feature.
2: If I I may, um, I think it was Joshua Logan, the director Joshua Logan said of Marilyn Monroe that she was the only other film actor who could simultaneously hold melancholy and comedy with just her face
1: Mm. in (laughs) the exact
2: same way as Chaplin. He referenced Chaplin when talking about her, her, her as an actor. So I, I think that's actually a brilliant double.
0: Man, well I should, it. I should probably <laughs> just, just leave it yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> but I I want to shout out a movie that I loved to watch as a child, and I think that there's this this movie might be the cheaper form of Chaplin comedy, and I'm okay with that. I'm going to recommend The Time of Their Lives with Bud Abbott and Lou Costello (laughs) because I loved that movie growing up, and I think that, at the very least, some of the physical comedy that you get from Abbott and Costello uh, can can kind of mimic the older style, and I just, I loved that film. So I'm going to put that one up there as well. Brad, I'm going to... I'm going to bring this into the modern
1: era, and when I was watching City Lights this time, one thing that I really want to call attention to, and I hope people go watch this like as their first silent movie, because, like I said, the influence of this movie is felt even today, and I most especially noticed it in this little scene where uh, the eccentric millionaire is hosting a party for Charlie Chaplin after he finds him out on the street the second time he gets drunk, and he has all these all his friends over and somebody puts a whistle in Charlie Chaplin's mouth and Charlie Chaplin gets slapped <laughs> in the back and then swallows the whistle. And there is this extended gag where there's like an opera singer that's going to perform a little song, you know, an aria or something in the room. And Chaplin starts coughing and every time he coughs, it makes a whistle sound and he interrupts it and they all look at him and then he stops And then they get ready to start again. And then the whistle starts again. And it happens like three or four times. And the sheer comic timing of that moment, I was like, oh, my gosh, I have seen this kind of moment replicated for decades and decades and decades. And in the spirit of bodily fluids on screen, it reminded me of this moment in the first Austin Powers International Man yes. of Mystery. <laughs> yes. When right after Austin Powers gets dethawed, he has to pee. And this pee goes on for like 45 seconds. And then every single time you think the scene is going to go on, there's just a slight little dribble more of pee. And it is Charlie Chaplin himself would be proud. And like, honestly, the more I thought about it, the more I realized Mike Myers really really leaned heavily on Chaplin in those movies and the the way that you know the physicality of it but also just the comic timing of those scenes uh i i just you know i can never recommend austin powers highly enough so
2: (laughs) that's my let's make it a double that's fantastic i've
1: never seen an austin powers what what (laughs) but brad you've seen a Chaplin film how have you never seen austin powers come on hey i'm a man of culture what can i say all right, guys, it is time for us to give final scores on this movie. I will get mine out of the way right now. Brad, this is probably one of my top twenty or twenty-five movies of all time. It's a ten out of ten. The end.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Bob, I am gonna let Mariah go first. Uh
2: oh. Oh. Uh yeah, I mean, I think it's also a ten out of ten. I feel like I think it's a perfect movie. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so here's here's my caveat I, I will come back and score this another day I'll score it today But I'm going to come back Watch the movie again at some point Once I've watched more silent film I, like, I trust your guys' opinion Having seen, I don't know A billion silent films at this point Between the two of you I just haven't seen other silent films And I don't know how to gauge this Against other movies that I've watched because every single other film I've watched has had sound attached mm-hmm. to it. Uh so I'm gonna go ahead and give this an eight and a half out of ten. And that's mm-hmm. just based purely on your love my... of Fellini. <laughs> Say <No>. it again. <laughs> your
2: love of Fellini.
0: <laughs> my my deep and adoring love of <laughs> Federico Fellini. Yes. <laughs> Obviously. Uh, that's just based on my enjoyment. I like it was hilariously funny. I really enjoyed it. One of the one of the better comedies I've watched. I think that I could probably come back and give this a nine, nine and a half at some point. But for today, I'm going to sit in, at an eight and a half. All right, there you have it. Between Brad and I, we are at a nine point two five
1: out of ten. Now, I do not expect that a lot of Film and Whiskey Nation has seen this movie, but if you have. I would like to know what you think. If we have inspired you to go watch your first silent movie, once again, uh, a plug for the fact that it is 82 minutes long and it is currently streaming on HBO Max or Max as it has rebranded to now. <laughs> and you can watch it with your eight, nine, 10 year old. Like, yeah. Totally fine. You know, as long as you can get over a couple suicide jokes, uh, <laughs> you you should be good. But we're at a 9.25. Let us know what you think. You can find us on our social medias, Facebook, Twitter,
0: Instagram, and TikTok, at Film Whiskey. Or you can jump onto our Discord. We are on there every single day talking to you guys, the fans of the Film and Whiskey podcast. So please join the conversation. You can find a link to our Discord at the end of every single one of our show notes. We want to thank our guest again today, Mariah Gates.
1: Mariah, I'm going to turn the floor over to you. Is there anything you'd like to plug, and where can we find you?
2: Um, Sure. I, I guess I would plug my Substack. It's we're like, in the 2010s again, where newsletters are the new blog, <laughs> which are the new Twitter. Um, but it's oldfilmsflickr.substack.com. I write a – every Friday I write a um, – feature called dire- Directed by Women Viewing Guide, where I recommend seven films directed by women to watch every you of a film a day for the whole next week. Um, usually, it's one or two new releases, and then five to six streaming picks. I just recently hit over 500 films recommended. Wow. So, um, there are lots of films directed by women. Um, and occasionally, I will talk about silent films on that as well. But on the Substack uh, itself, I also, that's where I tend to do my writing about silent film, because um, believe it or not, people do not pay that much. Although coming out of Babylon, <laughs> I did get several pieces out of that, and then strangely, um, Harold Boyd's uh, Safety Last hit 100 years last month, and I yeah. said, paid me to write about that, and I was like, everything's coming up, Mariah. So if you, you are a listener who does have money and wants writing about silent film, <laughs> please contact me. Um, but otherwise, I write on the Substack. Um, stack. <laughs> I just launched a feature called uh, called your silent face where, uh, which is a new order song that I love, but um, where I write about uh, I've only done one so far. I did it. It was Mary Astor. Um, But mostly I write about um, or plan to write about silent film actors who transitioned successfully and are maybe more known for their acting in talkies. So for example, Mm. Mary Astor is probably best known for *Maltese Falcon among other 1940s films, um, but she was one of the actresses to sort of come out of the late era of the silent film, and that's that's how she started, and she's got the most expressive eyes. And um, there's a lot of actresses like that, like Norma Shearer, who was the queen of MGM. I'm going to write one about her at some point, um, just to get people sort of thinking about these stars that maybe they think of in one mode, And are afraid to go back and look at the silence Um, and and try to get people interested. Joan Crawford's another one I'm going to write about at some point. Um, So I want to sort of highlight some of those actors that got, you know, were able to transition, but now their silent films are sort of the ones that people take for granted.
1: I just keep hearing like crossover with film and whiskey episodes. Like (laughs) I will talk about Mary Astor all day because Mary Astor
2: is amazing. She's got a crazy personal life, too. I
1: sat Brad down and just told like I made Brad watch Meet Me in St. Louis because it's maybe my favorite movie of all time. And I was like, like Mary Astor in the scene where they sing the song You and I is like one of the best pieces of acting I've ever seen in my life. You know, and
2: you know why she's so good. Because she started what, acting in the she silent face, era, they had
1: faces then. They right? had yeah. faces then. <laughs>
2: That's why she's so good.
1: Brad, before we get <laughs> out of here, I want to do one thing that we've never done on the History of Film and Whiskey podcast. Oh my goodness! Uh, my favorite Charlie Chaplin movie is on the docket for next week, and that is Modern Times. It's a film that like goes back and forth with City Lights as you know Chaplin's greatest. Do you want to do it next week? Or do you want to do the two other Chaplin films first and do that one last? Would it be better for you to do them head to head or to get more Chaplin context and then do that one at the end of the series?
0: Man, look at I just want to savor this moment of Bob giving me choice like that. That has happened for 15 of our, what, 202 movies (laughs) where I actually had a say in what was happening. Uh, Bob. I think that we should just forget Chaplin for a few movies and go into uh some. I don't know. Mariah can guide us. Yeah. Who, who's to say? Uh, no. She I, wants I would... uh,
2: Max Linder. Yeah, there you, there you go. go.
0: Max Linder. Let's <laughs> throw him in there. <laughs> no, I think we should do the other two films first. Okay. I, I'd like a little more time, b- before to you know. Get my feet wet before I jump into modern times. Well,
1: then what we're going to do is we're going to throw it back a few years from this, and we're going to look at 1925's The Gold Rush next week. So we'll be watching The Gold Rush. Uh, We're calling an audible on film and whiskey for the first time in history. Thank you for that, Brad. And thank you once again to our guest, Mariah Gates. We will see you next week for The Gold Rush. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.